Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Work It, the podcast all about entrepreneurship, hosted by me, journalist Angelica Malin, in collaboration with WorkLife. In season two of Work It, I'm chatting to some of the most inspiring entrepreneurs in the UK, from e-commerce wizards to retail experts, all about their secret recipe for success. If you don't already know, WorkLife has eight amazing co-working spaces across the UK, which provide a unique workspace experience designed around you and your team's happiness. They also have delicious free snacks, which I can personally vouch for. Don't forget to follow at work.life to find out more about WorkLife spaces and book in a free trial day at work.life. work it i'm joined by ed foy um co-founder of press tell me a little bit about your company um so press is a health food nutrition business um we started based around the kind of principle that everyone deserves to be happy and we kind of believe in the power of nutrition to change people's lives for the better and then our kind of aim is to create products and services that allow it to be easy and understood for people to integrate good nutrition into their lives and see them live better, higher quality and happier lives. So it all kind of started in California and New York, where my co-founder Georgie was living in L.A. and I was living in the States and I'd been there for five years and she'd been there for two, um, both working in other businesses and kind of just looking at what had happened in, to, in the whole kind of cold press juice movement in LA and New York and the idea was kind of hey let's bring this back to the UK and sort of start the movement here because mm. America's always quite far ahead of us in terms of trends like when I went to America a few years ago CBD was kind of happening and now it's just happening here you know so they're always a bit ahead of the curve so how did it go from having that initial idea to actually launching a business um it went optimistically at the beginning and probably naively to very painfully to now in a good place um we sort of I suppose we thought through the business model a bit to some extent. Our view was both Georgie had another business and I was involved in like some other businesses as well. So we kind of thought, let's get our, let's start small. So we created the the brand name and a logo, which I would recommend to anyone. Don't worry about like a big branding agency at the start. Just you just need a graphic designer like and a name, and they'll like run at stuff, and you'll point out things you like and don't like, and eventually you'll get there. But you can pay very little for your logo essentially. Um, and we started off very small. We started in a. Um, TA military base in down in South London that we rented by the day 
um, with these two little machines and we opened a little bathtub stall in Old Street Tube Station and the idea was to essentially we developed the recipes and then started selling them at a price that would make sense in terms of margin and kind of was to test to see if people would buy these products in the UK as sort of much as they did in the States which was a great experience albeit one with zero sleep for the first month of just running it all so it was good so you really kind of bootstrapped it and you were just looking at does this product have a market basically does it have a consumer yeah exactly and i think that was um i think that was the right thing for us for sure i think the manufacturing side of things we hadn't really thought through how to scale up but we certainly at least sort of got some info on whether people were interested and were going to buy this product because even then green juices were not this is now four and a half nearly five years ago it's amazing how far it's moved since then um so as you said like the health trend stuff is always a bit further ahead in america but quite a long way ahead but the news travels quite quickly so you see the newspapers talk about health trends. As you said, CBD was probably mentioned quite a long time ago in the press. Mm. But actually, when mainstream consumption comes on board, it's like another five years after that. So. Yeah, exactly. And then where did you go from there, from that kind of bootstrap business where you just had these two machines to actually building it, scaling it? Um, how did that happen? So we both um, we had so myself and Georgie both had some some savings. And we had some help from friends and family. So we basically rented a a railway arch in Battersea to create our first kitchen. Um, And we brought over a big machine from the US. So that was like a a big bit of spend that we were putting into the business. And we rented a a store. um, And this is a big lesson, actually, that I was talking to someone else today about is because we didn't have really enough money to open the shop in the right location. Um, we compromised and went, opened in a place that was not the right location. And the problem with that is that there are concepts that just no matter how hard you try, being on the wrong street where there's no footfall, mm. despite being attractive because your deposit is a lot less and your rent's a lot less, you may never get the, sh- the chance to really win because there just aren't enough people walking by for you to even kind of like stand in a giant pineapple costume and wave them in with a free coffee or a free juice. Mm. Um, it just wasn't enough. No, and that shop today does does fine, but it's a really hard lesson and one that I felt like I sort of completely missed and should have. I'd been in retail most of my career and, you know, Georgie's very smart. So, but somehow we both, you can't help but bow to the fact that you don't have the money to do it. Mm. So you sort of, because you're so excited to get going and you want to kind of do it all, you don't necessarily have someone there saying, look, you, you may never make it if you're not open in, the, in a big enough footfall area. Mm. Um, you almost kind of need a mentor at that point to say, look, I've done this before. Exactly. And a mentor very yeah, in a very specific space too. And you're sort of like, you're just optimistic and naive. And I had an MBA, you know, from what was considered a good school in the States. And I felt like I'd been in business, you know, enough before and helped start businesses. And even then, I still you still get caught up in it all and still make a lot of errors along the way. So survival is is the first key thing. Yeah, definitely. It's also that thing of going cheap and then paying for it later. I've definitely had that with websites. Where I feel like, wow, this guy's a bargain. And then, God, you pay for it later. You know, it's an expensive mistake. Um, and so you didn't take any formal investment at the start? No, no. We were fortunate that we did have some money between us to do it. I think we really, like, ripped as much cost out everywhere we could. We did as much as we could ourselves you know, painting walls and all of the rest um, and, you know, had enough to get going. I think another one in retail is to recognise that you should you should always have your, 
you should always have your bank account at a place where you could almost not sell a single thing for six months. Mm-hmm. You kind of need deep enough pockets because the first six months are so much of it's learning, so much of it's, you know, um, trickier. And especially when we were making everything ourselves and then selling it, you know, moving it to the, we were do, running a proper manufacturing business off site and then a retail business on site. Mm-hmm. Combining those two things may have been a better idea at the beginning, but long term actually helped us to have a central kitchen. Yeah. And so how did you manage that cash flow in the early days when you were spending a lot of money on like de- product development and testing things out? How do you keep that cash flow going? Uh, I mean, I think we were just as frugal as we could be. Um, and I think we ultimately probably lost a good amount of money i think we were doing a very poor job at the beginning of really knowing our true margin that's one thing that i you know i speak to a lot of um people who are starting their own businesses now um whether i'm a um cautionary tale or someone to look to look towards is unclear but um i think uh yeah we managed it probably with a not enough caution and I think we definitely um, hurt a lot in that first period where we just didn't have the volume going through the business so we managed it by having the money we'd saved we built the thing as cheap as we could build it and then starting to build revenue and surviving for long enough that we could kind of get to a place where the sales look good we got very lucky in that the Selfridges a head of food at Selfridges walked past our store walked in and then we had this big bathtub in the middle and it looked quite cool and interesting and the product was was really good the product was always great um if somewhat expensive to make and um they actually emailed us and said look we have a meeting literally tomorrow at noon about a juice bar going into our food hall um we really love what you've done we did know about you but we haven't really kind of come and talked to you could you pull a presentation together tomorrow before that meeting Mm -hmm. um so we sat up all night and made a 85 page deck with everything that sort of together our skill sets had made and I think they were like wow this is a lot of work that's gone in in 12 hours and so they got us in um to well to at least a meeting so yeah and did you get the juice bar we did yeah and it's still there and it definitely was the like making of the business because it just the volume that you get through Selfridges is great Mm because there's just so many people coming through and we were something interesting at the time and so we were no we were so lucky and it's sort of that thing about luck plays such a massive part as does bad luck in inverted commas and i think we all in any industry in any business you all have a fair your fair share of of both and you tend to i think lament and very much place a lot of emphasis on your bad luck and often underplay when things go right Mm. and often neither were in your control but Mm. are kind of i think that selfridges example is a good case of where an opportunity came at a time where we were willing to put in so much work and sort of having not slept anyway, but still put in the time and the work and the prep. And we knew enough about our business that we got lucky to get into the room. And then I think we were enthusiastic. And I think we did a good job. We were we certainly outperformed everything they thought we could when we got there. So that was extremely lucky. I often think, you know, if they hadn't have walked down that street that day, we would have, I don't think we would have survived. So, wow. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, but I suppose it's, it's partly about luck. You had an opportunity, but it's also you kind of made your own luck because you made the most out of it. A lot of people would be given that opportunity and not be able to perform so you, you did kind of milk it for, for what it was worth um, w- with retailers what advice would you give people who are thinking of starting a food or drink brand and just want to get their foot through the door and start getting it stocked somewhere and um, what have you found like the best routes for that so um i think one is making sure you understand the economics i think your job as a supplier of a product to or any retailer is their concern is 
yes, they want their business to look the right way and their shelves to look the right way, but they actually also, it, they, they are there to make money just as you are. And if your margins don't make sense before you go and talk to them, mm-hmm. they can almost shut down the conversation as, you know, as quickly. You can be there enthusiastically selling. We love the taste of the product, but if your cost of goods is wrong and it doesn't make sense for them, you'll just never get on the shelf. And so... Actually, I think a lot of people do not spend enough time up front understanding how the margins work. And if you're talking about independent retailers, there's a bit more room. But when you get into, say, starting to even look at big grocery, that is a completely different world in terms of the way you slice up the, the available like profit in a, in a product. Yeah, um, so getting those margins really good. But the other one is, like, as someone told me, um, like a very senior guy who's been in the industry a long time who occasionally I catch up with was like, in the end, Ed, it's shoe leather. It's just running around and talking to as many people as possible and walking in and trying to know what it is that they're concerned about, looking at their shelves and making sure you understand what they might want. Um, And relentlessness. We were talking about, um, I was on a panel at a university, like business school panel, uh, talking about startup businesses. And there was a good spectrum of people there. I was definitely at the smallest end in terms of uh, like business development. And one of the guys in the audience asked about, we'd been talking about finance, we'd been talking about product. And one of the guys asked how important was sales and the skill set of salesmanship. And the person to my right kind of answered, well, if you, you know, if you're passionate about the product, you'll never need to sell anything. And my answer was, I think that is the completely the opposite of my experience. Yeah. Like, I always like the story about the guy, I think he was in the penny stocks industry. And his whole thing was, he looked around and realized that ultimately, it wasn't whether you were good on the phone in terms of sales, because it like the person at the other end, when you cold call them is either going to say, I'm interested or I'm not. His, what he realized was he needed to make 100 phone calls a day, mm-hmm. and that would be the thing that changed his output in terms of sales. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we actually switched right at the beginning from saying, okay, team, let's find exactly the right opportunity, and then go and visit them and really try and nurture them into it, to you guys need to make 100 phone calls a day because that is how you will get the volume through the door. You've got to have the top of the funnel full because you know, you'll know you only get so many of those come through. Mm. Whether so that's actually quantity, like just absolutely, totally. Up. Also, just getting on the phone. I think that's something that we find so hard. Yeah. You know, it's not a millennial thing to ring someone up anymore. Yeah, you'd rather email. Yeah. And emails are just non-reactive. And yeah, I think that's totally right. And if you have a good manner on the phone, it's amazing. If you catch the person at the right moment, don't call them in the morning rush. You know, like learning their business, actually, you sort of recognize it. And then sending samples right like you have to give something away for nothing to get the shot at doing it and we sell all over the uk now and again that's we're not limited by not being able to visit glasgow actually you can google the coolest cafes in glasgow and then start talking to them all and it's great like yeah you can build it up from there um in terms of actually building a great product what um what did you implement in the business to make sure that the product was like continually developing it was staying on top of trends and also being kind of different to other brands in the market? I think at the beginning, we we certainly, because we went, because we were in America to begin with, we actually went at the very beginning to speak to a guy called David who started the Beverly Hills Juice Bar. And that was literally started doing cold-pressed juice in the 70s, I think. And he's like super old, but I think he's made mostly of juice these days. But like, he's honestly like, he believed in this years ago when no one was even into nutrition in the way they are today. So one, we had a great 
education in the, like the purity of the product and keeping things extremely high quality. In terms of keeping things interesting and innovative, um, one, I'm like extremely ADD, so I'm always wanting something new. Um, but two, having our own retail does mean that you have conversations all the time with customers. And for us, whether the journey going forward is about our own stores, whether it's about our wholesale retail business where we sell to other people to, for them to sell, or whether it's our online business, having that like tangible 30,000 customers a month coming through the door and speaking to you, like they're extremely vocal when they don't like the taste of something, or they're extremely vocal when they ask why you don't have something, or if you change a recipe, why we've changed it. Mm. So I think paying attention to that but having said that, I think we have probably drifted away from spending time listening and talking to the customer in the last year and a half, actually. And we should have, we literally have just started a marketing research group that are people either online through email, um, we can speak to and ask their opinion on product and their kind of legacy customers that we've had for a long time, or getting research groups out of our customers in store into our Soho store to have like conversations with. Mm. Um, yeah, I so think actually having like a physical marketplace where you can speak to them, it just feels like such a great part of product development because you get to actually talk to people. It's no, like free yeah. market research, you know. Totally, yeah, yeah. We're, we're very lucky to have it. And again, like, my dad always said strategies are made in hindsight. Like when you write the book, it'll be, oh, we had the retail because it, and that made sense. But mm. actually when you're going forward, it's survival and opportunism that sort of puts it out. And then you figure out looking back how it all worked. Exactly. But, when I spoke, I interviewed Ella Mills of Delicielli yeah. a few months ago for an event. And she said to me, well, the thing with the delis is they don't make us loads of money, but they give me like live feedback on different recipes, which I can then put in a book that I can then develop for products to go into yeah. waitros. So it doesn't, those numbers aren't so important. It's actually about the people that come through the doors. So yeah. it seems like it's a similar kind of. No, that's totally it. And it's really interesting with, you know, we did end up with investors um, in the business, like first a, a single investor, the Clark Group, Steve Clark, who's an amazing entrepreneur himself and, and many time investor. And what's interesting with, with having an investor when they're good is they hold your feet to the fire to say, why do you have three channels? And, you know, that comes up a lot and you have to be able to justify that because, you know, we've done a crowdfunding as well last year and we've got to return value to our investors. Like I would hate the idea of, I hope this is, you know, this business goes on for a very long time and I want to make sure that we reward investors for their faith and mm. you know belief in us doing it as well as for their very hard-earned dollars that have gone into the business yeah how did you find taking investors changed the nature of the business for you i think the first investor steve and his group that invested they would be like an angel investor but a little bit more serious than ju just a basic angel more like a vc angel um they just made us much more diligent around the numbers and i think it's so easy to get caught up in brand and sales. And I, my background is not in finance. I have, you know, an education in it to some extent with an MBA. But like, you know, when you have the discipline of a quarterly board meeting, whether the board meeting sounds very grand when it's me, Georgie and Steve, and like and maybe someone from his team sitting around a table, but they're going to ask the hard questions. And there have been times where we have sat with a spreadsheet for on a screen for like, five hours literally breaking down the costs of the business rebuilding them pulling out costs where we needed to and him being that involved was amazing for us and i think i think again i would say that we probably would not have survived without that input from someone who was tried and tested and understood about 
how important it getting your margin right versus just continuing to sell mm. because you can sell yourself bust basically. Mm. Um, basically having someone outside of it who can look in totally. you know, with a bird's eye view and say this, this and this, this is what you need to change or working yeah. with you. Um, in terms of kind of growth and expansion, um, how did you find the right people to hire and to bring into the business and what have you found about kind of developing that side of, of the business? I think, yeah, I mean, we got quite big because we had manufacturing which at times was like seven to ten people when we were doing what was quite big volumes are you know in manufacturing in in the kitchen in Battersea and so much of it was like hire just because we need a body Mm -hmm. (laughs) like and so some of it was just network you know we our first first employee George was when we first had the bathtub was working on um a company called Spoon which is a is a cereal business yeah. yeah um and we kind of needed him to just man our stall for like an afternoon when we couldn't, I couldn't be there and Georgie couldn't be there. And we ended up hiring him and he's still with us today. So some of it's just been having a great feeling about someone and seeing if they're foolish enough to come and work for you or work with you. Um, and then as we've got more serious, sometimes, we, you know, we've used recruiters in the past, to be honest. We've never had a good result of using a recruiter, um, which is not to speak badly of recruiters because there are plenty of good ones. We just didn't have that. And particularly was it was for a finance position because we didn't really know what the right fit was for, for the finance mm-hmm. side of the business. Um, but we've definitely, I will say, you have to have a thick skin. We've definitely let a lot of people go over the time we've worked. Like sometimes it's just been because we've had some pretty crazy people. You know, we've had people coming in high into our production facility who were like on some fairly serious narcotics yeah. and people driving our van at one point. Our delivery guy was definitely having some major issues. And there have been all kinds of crazy stuff. Someone got violent once in our manufacturing facility, in our you know kitchen, and so there's been that side of it, and then there's been like the the more normal side of it, which is you really don't have time to give someone six months when you're so early to to kind of come up to speed, and so being cautious about exactly, and you want to, and you know that they're good people, and you know that they'll thrive in another environment. So for us, without sounding too do-goodery, we always try and pre-find opportunities before we kind of have that conversation. And so just through the network, mm. you have a very strong network, I'm sure. And we talk to other food companies because people who are further ahead than us have more scope to be able to nurture. Mm. And it's really sad because sometimes you've got some amazing people who we are now still friends with and are very successful. And you're kind of like, God, maybe we didn't do a good job of making them into the best person they could be. But mm. sometimes you're just running so fast and you're just in survival mode. You sort of have to do yeah, it. You can't, and it's not for everyone. Not everyone can keep up with the pace of a startup and wants that kind of life. And that's yeah. something I'm aware of now is that you sometimes can't get the right cultural fit and the right skill fit. And you have to sort of work out whether it's actually almost sometimes easier to get a cultural fit than it, and then train them for skill yeah. um, just to make them kind of fit in and make it work. I mean, one thing we have definitely realized is there is like, and we had it a few times where we hired someone to just kind of fill a place. You know, we hired someone that we didn't, weren't 100% about, but we needed a person to do a role. And they were an arsehole. And sorry for the, for the language. Like, but they were ultimately ended up being a real dick and everyone hated coming to work. And it's amazing. I always thought it was a law of averages where 80% great, fun people, mm. you can tolerate 20% not fun people. Mm. And actually the reality is one really annoying person honestly ruins everyone's day forever and you have to get rid of them as soon as possible because the people start looking at you like you're crazy because you didn't see this and the other one is trying to encourage people to come and talk to you when they are 
not enjoying someone they're working with. So we're much better at that now it's in terms of feedback. It's lovely you've had a lot of lows with your highs <laughs> when it comes There's to been, hiring. There have been very few highs. <laughs> no, no, the team now are amazing. And yeah. we've had so many good people. It's just the, the cautionary tales along the way are like, just make sure the fit. And again, very rarely have we ever had an issue, maybe apart from the guy who's trying to stab people. But apart from that, <laughs> like we very rarely left actually on anything other than good terms because you just look someone in the eye and tell them the truth and the truth is it's not working for you it's very rarely working for them either you know everyone knows when they're struggling or when they're feeling weird about being at work and actually that's horrible yeah. and we, you want to move you really them. want to create an environment that nurtures people and allows them to try and actually like really perform as best they can and get the most out of a job yeah, rather totally. than dreading it yeah. um, as an entrepreneur what do you think what qualities do you think you need um, what kind of skills do you think you need to develop to run your own business um, Other than resilience and grit and all that kind of stuff. No, thing. for sure. Um, so I think, uh, look, certainly numbers. Like, if you don't understand the numbers, you have no chance. Like, none. And, you know, I, again, really cannot speak enough to the fact that I was probably, I probably knew enough to be dangerous in that I could sit and build this a great model. But I'm also, the other, the other side of that is optimism, right? And I'm a massive optimist. And the danger of that is you also always believe in the upside and that the best things will happen. And again, that's quite dangerous when you're trying to build a model and build out your five-year projections. And there's always going to be some optimism there. But you have to be an optimist to survive the, like, the down bits, um, but I do think there are also some, just some fundamentals. And I would say your first hire should always be a finance person or your business partner, if you are not, should be a finance person mm-hmm. because like, you just can't win otherwise, in yeah. my opinion. Making sure someone's on top of those numbers. From, from day one and also never, never looking to, um, say, a, an external bookkeeper or an accountant. I honestly have like five tale, cautionary tales where an external bookkeeper and an accountant you know, we're on board and you think that they're they're kind of in control. But the reality is they're just not invested in the business. It's not cynical. It's just that's not their job. Their job is to just make sure the reports are coming through on a monthly basis. And I've multiple times, myself included and other people, have had it where a reasonably qualified and competent accountancy firm or person has ultimately suddenly gone, oh, my God, we're going to be out of money in a month's time mm-hmm. just because they weren't watching because it's not their thing. So it has to be someone sitting inside the business. Otherwise, you just don't get the buy-in. Yeah, so that they really know. Is there anything you would have gone back and done differently with the business? Many things. It's like so many. Give me some top lines. Top line, like we started off with a three-day shelf life product. That is literally an impossible business model to to create. Mm. Whilst it was the freshest and the best product we could make, if you look to America, no one does that because it just is not really sustainable. Mm. Um, And... So that's a big one, which is I would have like planned for that to be the start of the business. And so, you know, today we use this process called high pressure processing, which is basically you cold press the juice and then you squeeze it in a big water tank in the bottle. And ultimately what that does is kill all the bacteria, but leave everything, all the nutrient content, like 95% intact. Now that's what everyone uses in the States and everyone uses in Australia, but like I wasn't really looking at that. And so not understanding that technology and not understanding that market enough, I think we... Was that a more expensive way? It's a, for sure. And it is more expensive and that's the, the painful bit. Absolutely, it's a lot more expensive to do. But by the time you're done with three-day shelf life product, it's so hard to just make that supply chain work. Mm. I have a friend who has a donut company, Crosstown, and I'm always like mesmerized. They do really well. Yeah. But like flowing that product and getting your forecasting right is just tough. Yeah, and it's a product that's just about freshness. Like no one's wanting stale donuts. Totally, so. yeah, totally. Yeah, that is it, for sure. It's delicious. Exactly. They always nail it. Um, 
Is there anything else that you do differently? Um, so um, I think another one is that we got investment. And I think and I do I do feel like I hear this story often is that people think when they get investment or they have good access to good funding, I think today's generation of entrepreneurs are very impatient to make things happen quickly because I think we're all looking at tech businesses that are like unicorns. Mm. And I think that's just the nature of the way we view the world. And so you talk to a lot of, and I I was definitely in this camp too. It was like, let's get this done in three years and we'll sell the business and be onto something new or, or whatever it was. And I think the reality is there's this idea that if I build something that looks and spend like we're a big business, we'll be a successful business. Mm. For example, I think we moved into an office too soon. We were working out of our store and then we got investment. So we're like, well, we need an office. Mm. And then we actually went into the office and we're like, God, we're spending a lot on this office and things aren't going that well. So we came back out of the office. And in the end, we ended up working in a cinema because it was across the road and they had space for all of us to sit down and also our store for like another year and a half. And you just think it, anywhere you can save money yeah. all along, along the way, keep doing it. Keep doing it for as long as you can do it because very rarely is it the spending of the money that will ultimately drive the success of the business mm. Um, mm. In, in things that are like that, that are optically you know, sort of well, impactful. Thing, stuff that we feel like we think we need. Like, I am a business because I am in an office. But actually, Correct. that's you can be a multi-million pound business and run out of Starbucks. And I know quite a few people who do that. So, yeah, it's those things. I think it's a confidence thing, isn't it? It's, it's the confidence to feel like you're a business owner. And that you can, and also worrying about what other people are looking at you and thinking. Because I think there's a also an ego part to being an entrepreneur, which is you're worried everyone thinks, what are you doing? Mm. And then if it doesn't work, everyone's going to think, God, you're an idiot. Mm. And so you're sort of like, it's all tied into into one another. I think I definitely struggled for the first like two years, three years with that. Um, mm. Yeah, it's that little voice in your head that's like, you should go get a job now or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, or like, I wish I hadn't done this <laughs> yeah. because this it's looks terrible. Yeah. yeah, But I do think when you break out of that structure of like going in every day and having a salary and being in a nine to five, there's a lot of that kind of self-doubt that comes to the surface that you have to deal with. I always feel like you have to work on yourself a bit more because there's nowhere to hide. You don't go to an office and bury your head in the sand. You go and you have to perform. So you have to really feel, you have to feel like the business. You have to really walk the walk and everything. Um, what do you think about... Uh, millennials and loyalty to brands. I feel like it's something that's a bit of an issue with our generation is not staying particularly loyal to one brand, kind of getting excited by a trend or something like that, and then just kind of dying off. And how do you kind of retain customer loyalty and get people coming back and buying your products? Um, Yeah, I think the loyalty thing, I've never believed in customer loyalty in the sense of I've always thought that, because I've always been a consumer goods and I've always thought like, Loyalty is only as strong as the last time that person interacted with you and had a good experience and bought a good item that delivered on the thing they wanted it to deliver or a service, right? So if it's a a clothing brand, if they buy that item of clothing, and I'm thinking back in the Jack Wills days when I worked there, you know, where strong branding was really everything, and you wore an item of clothing and that was said something about you, well, as soon as it said the wrong thing about you, you stopped buying the clothing. And so loyalty in in its like conceptual sense I don't think has ever has has existed um in the way that I would like it to have um because in the end the customer's dollars will go as the most convenient the cheapest price for the best product and so I think ultimately choice is awesome like and millennials or anyone today has so much choice because of the internet 
Um, but I think you do have to just commit to delivering every time, and it's that consistency. And I think if you look at Pret, like I don't know if I'd say customers are loyal to Pret, like, but I think they get served so well every time they go mm. that ultimately I don't think they would say I'm really loyal to Pret, but they just keep going back. So conscious that you do because yeah. I think it just delivers at the right price point at the right time, a convenient thing, and and, and serves a purpose. So. Um, I'd love to be a Pret. <laughs> it would be awesome. <laughs> nice ginger shots. Sure. Ginger yeah, shots. well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, do you worry about competition? Is it something that you think about a lot, competition within your industry? I think we our journey was at the time, especially within the retail space, where we were going to be a big juice bar chain. That was the original concept. There were actually a lot of other people out there. But what's amazing is I just, in the end, you kind of do need to focus on yourself and doing the best job you can with the products you've got. I think the markets are always big enough to sustain one, two, three, four people or brands. Um, I think you're far more likely to trip yourself up than a competitor brand is to prevent you from being successful. Mm -hmm. So we've always, something actually me and Georgie used to conflict about a little bit was Georgie was often looking elsewhere to see what other people were doing and maybe we should be doing that. And I was always sort of of the other mind, like, we're too early to be worried about it. I think she was right in part and I was right in part, which is staying focused on our mission and what we think is right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that presumes that you th- you are correct. If you are wrong and running in the wrong direction, then then, you, then you're lost and you should have looked at other people. But mm-hmm. I think it's a bit of a balance of awareness of an industry, but not, like, intimidation or stopping you do it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and look, when we're in the drinks business, there's just so much, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it's, it is... Everything's competitive. I don't know anything that's not, you know, whether it be Facebook or, you know, there were other things out there that were doing the same job. They just did a better job. And for us, we always concentrated on rather than having made one great decision at the beginning, which was to open a cold press, cold press juice bar. It was about making a thousand good decisions a week, little decisions better than other people that meant that we survived and, and carried on. Right. So Yeah. And finally, if you were to give advice to anyone who's thinking about starting a food or drink brand, uh, what were so like three key tips that you would give them about product and launch? I would say know if you're going to be a manufacturing business or you're going to be a brand and a product development business. Like if you look at Innocent as the kind of golden goose of all of the of all these this generation of Businesses, I think in my head and our head, we always thought we would be both manufacturing and brand. Mm. Now we started ourselves and that meant that we really understood this business and then we got too big for where we were. So we now manufacture with partners and they're the best in the world at it and much better than I could ever be or Georgie and me could ever be because we're not manufacturers and I've never built a juice factory in my life. So knowing where that that pathway looks like and making sure if you can get a manufacturing partner on board early that believes in you, then you can concentrate on being the best product you can be and like getting out there and Branding. and selling like and just getting out there and selling the product so i think that's one part if it's in our space is go and find a manufacturing partner earlier early because very few businesses like you know can can really do both mm-hmm. um so i think that's one for sure fantastic well thank you so much for chatting to me if people thank would like you. to find out more about your company or follow them online where should they find you um www.press hyphen london.com terrible website name or press underscore i think press underscore london on instagram so yeah thank you so much thank you hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so more people can find the show. And if you're feeling inspired and thinking of pursuing a creative project of your own, then there's a home for you at Work Life. You can find out more at work.life. Candy Store production for Work Life, hosted by Angelica Malin and produced by Van Connor. T-shirt weather by Poddington Bear appears under Creative Commons 3.0 with podcast recording facilities in partnership with Work Life. Visit work.life for more information and you can find us at candystoreproductions.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.